Broadcasting from Youngstown, Ohio, this is the MV Red Podcast, the show where we talk about news and politics impacting the Mahoning Valley, the state of Ohio, and the USA. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, find us on your favorite podcast streaming app or visit our website, www.mvred.com. If you want to share your opinion with us, please email info at mvred.com, as we would love to hear from you. Now, let's get things started. Here are your hosts, Michael Metzinger and Dane Davis. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the MV Red podcast. My name is Michael Metzinger, and joining me once again is my co-host, Dane Davis, and it's been, what, about three weeks since our last podcast? Does that sound about right? Uh, I think so. I think so, yeah. So how how have things been going for Dane Davis over the last few weeks? Well, I'm on staycation this week. Oh, uh, those are my favorite. Yeah, it's really comfy, and I've been going to fairs. Uh, Today was Dane Day, so it was all about Dane. I, uh, I read a book. I went to the library, I got some coffee, walked through the park. It's been a really good day. It's comfy. Oh, I like that. I'm like living that. my uh, comfiest life now. I've uh, I've learned quickly in my, what, six, six plus years or seven plus years now of working, I've enjoyed staycations more than anything because the vacations I've taken, although I've enjoyed them, it's like, you know, you got the travel, you'll have some traveling here and there and all the hoopla I go, and then packing your luggage and, and all that nonsense. And I just, I like a week at home where I do nothing. I could I could spend time on the lawn, play video games, random stuff like that. So uh, Yeah, it's pretty comfy. I'm quite jealous of you. Well, don't be jealous because, uh, you, you know, you have other assets. You're a Metzinger. You're part of the world's famous uh, Metzinger dynasty. And I'm just <laughs> a simple Davis, you know, so don't get too jelly. Okay. All right, so on today's episode, uh, we'll start off. Uh, Dane wants to talk briefly about the Canfield Fair, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And then we're going to piggyback off of how we concluded our last episode. And it was – I read an article by what I believe to be a 26-year-old college student whose name was Alyssa Algren. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Sorry. She's 26 and still in college? Well, she, she I, I, uh, I need to elaborate further. She's in grad school for her MBA. Oh, okay. I needed to add that fact in there, so so we don't think, you know, she's been in college for eight years. Yeah, I wouldn't trust anybody that's in college for eight <laughs> years. Like, I'm just going to throw your article in the trash. But okay, sorry, I interrupted. No, you no, 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 no. So, 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 nonetheless, at the time, I, I, I even said in the episode, I didn't do any fact checking on this girl. And so I didn't know if she actually wrote it. Um, but nonetheless, I read it because I, I, I liked it. I liked a lot of what was said. But, Dane, you were quick to call it boomer propaganda. And so uh, after the episode – actually, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But uh, so I'll have some interesting things to share about that. Well, let's first get started on the Canfield Fair. You wanted to talk about that briefly. So, so let's talk about the – what was it? The 173rd or something like that running? Yeah, I, I I can't count that high, so I don't know. But it's something like that. Yeah, it's it's been going on a long time. So so here's the point, and this is a MV Red. It's obviously obviously a political podcast. So I want to make a political point. 
um, my wife and I, we went to the Canfield Fair on Monday, and then we went to the Geographer Fair. Or excuse me, we went to the Canfield Fair on Sunday, and then the Geographer Fair on Monday. Um, and of course, part of our trip to the fair it involves not only buying Dippin' Dots, which costs like eighty thousand dollars to buy three little spears. They are expensive. They're very expensive. But it's the ice cream of the future, so it's probably cheap in the future. Um, <laughs> But not only do we go to Dippin' I always go to the booths for the Republicans and the Democrats. Yes. Right? It's, it's a tradition. I'm sure you have it oh, yes. mapped out where last, the GOP yeah, booth. Although I'll admit last year was the first year I probably had gone in a decade, and I thought the Republican one had moved because I wanted to get a Michael Rooley sign and a Chris DePizzo sign. And I thought maybe it moved, but the, I think the Democratic one's still roughly in the same location. Yeah, so the Democratic one is by the grandstand, but it's like one of the – roads off of the grandstand correct and the republican one is on a corner in between the grandstand and the main entrance yep so it's it's kind of like it's in a little bit you know the food area um but uh it has a nice corner spot it's pretty prime real estate mm-hmm. but listen so here's the point um i've been going to the Campbell fair since i'd say high school um and i've been going to the republican booth and the democratic booth and when i started going to the fair in high school so call it 2003, 2004, 2005, the Bush years. The Republican booth got some people, but I would say around 70% of the attendees of the political booths were at the Democratic booth, right? Yep, agreed. And 2016, I went with my wife, Shanley, and we noticed that the Republican booth was packed full of people, and the Democratic booth, which with Hillary Clinton signs and Tim Kaine signs, was completely empty. I wanted to see if that phenomenon was still going on, right? When I saw that, I knew, like, something's up. This is Mahoning County. Granted, it's a fair population, so it's more rural than average. I accept that point. But I was like, you know, is the Trump enthusiasm still high, right? I went back this year, and I have to say, the Republican booth, completely packed full of people, uh, people coming in and out, lots of people sitting out front, uh, you know, usually a pretty good crowd at all hours of the day, right? Mm-hmm. The Democratic booth, empty deserted again it was completely deserted yeah wow. i was surprised there were three old ladies um there were volunteers there and that was it that was it and hmm. so you know one of the themes of this podcast is the transformation of the mahoney valley right it's moved towards the republican party and i think if you go to the fair you go to it at the fair enough times you could see this play out so i thought that was a really interesting observation that i would share with you and the general crowd yeah, I think that's fascinating. Especially, no, in 2016, did you go the day that Trump was there? Or did I did not? not. Okay. No, I think I went before or after. No, I thought Biden was also there in 2016. Mm, he may have been. I don't think Hillary would have gone there, right? I know Hillary didn't, but I thought maybe Biden was there. And it may have been on one of their slower days, like a Thursday or a Friday during the afternoon. It may because I thought Trump maybe had gone on a Sunday or a Monday. He did. He did. And I. I think we went on a Saturday, maybe. Oh, okay. Trump went on the Sunday. But, yeah, we didn't see Trump. Um, but, yeah, he did definitely go to the Campbell Fair. That's true. Yeah. But this was not the day he went. So you can't say, well, all the people were there because of Trump. Yeah. He wasn't there this year. Um, and it still was really, really busy. And I was also at the Geographer. Fair. No, Geauga's a much more Republican county. The Trump enthusiasm through the roof. The Democratic hmm. tent empty. So it's interesting. The grassroots still seem to be behind Trump. Which surprised me, right? I'm not trying to advocate for anything. I'm just taking this observation. Yeah. And the Republican booths are busy. Hmm. 
that is that that's pretty I think that's pretty fascinating, especially in a year like this. There's not much on the ballot that I could think of. Uh, there might be some court or, you know, or judicial seats up, but I mean, I can't really think of any reason why either one of them would even be busy, but it, I guess it's somewhat encouraging. But like you said, the type of people I guess more prone to attend the fair, maybe are more rural, but I would say Canfield fair may be different than most County fairs. And so far as, I mean, it's got such a, uh, uh, history to it that you still get a, a, quite the crowd from all the suburbs and even the city coming out because um, it is what the six best days six best days of summer as they bill it um, but hmm uh, that's that's pretty interesting I guess well, it'll be real fascinating to see how it plays out next year and uh, during a during a presidential election year but you know maybe that means that. The diehard or the the devout Trump supporters aren't 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 aren't, aren't going away from him. They're, they still are firmly on his side. Um, I guess we'll see. But that, yeah. that, that's a good point you brought up. I uh, I worked uh, the GOP booth at the Geauga Fair, and people were super enthusiastic about Trump. Granted, it's a very Republican area, so that this shouldn't be a surprise. But you know, I think if you watch Twitter, you watch the news. It kind of distorts the reality on the ground. And one more point, you asked, like, why would people be so interested in, in, you know, going to a fair booth? I think it might be a lot of people use the phrase silent majority. They felt that, you know, they're not allowed to voice support of Trump because they get attacked by their friends and family. But at the fair, there's a Republican booth. They can find other like-minded people and connect with them. So I think that's definitely going on. Yeah, I think maybe it's a bit liberating for them to be able to share their their feelings and, and be able to express themselves without repercussions that you're – called whatever you want to be called a racist uh, whatever this or that um yeah good all good points so i guess i maybe next year I'll, I'll i'll have to take a trip bring the two boys and the wife out to the fair and uh i guess i'll probably have to go out there regardless i'm gonna have to get some yard signs uh but i'll, I'll make sure to stop into the uh to both booths um, I think one thing I – and mean, we'll have to have this on a future episode – is how the future of the Mahoning, in, uh, Mahoning Republican and Democratic Party is going to play out now that both parties have new leadership. Uh, Mark Monroe retired on the Republican side. Oh, goodness. His replacement. His name is escaping me. Uh, Tom McCabe. So he's been, I think, with the County Board of Elections for quite some time. But he's the new chair of the Republican Party in Mahoning County. And then on the Democratic side – uh, of course, Attorney Dave Beatrice, well-known throughout the Mahoning Valley, he decided that he was going to resign as chairman. I think his son was in the military, and he used that um, as his reasoning in part that maybe it would be a good time to step away. And I think the vice chairman of the County Board of Elections, who's worked alongside McCabe, I think her name's like Kale Pesta, is the new chairman or chairwoman of the Democratic Party. So. I mean, Beatrice, loud. Um, you know, sometimes you, you know, people who, who I've talked to say he's often obnoxious, um, but he's well connected, and so now he's gone, and you have somebody who, quite frankly, I'm not really sure I know too much about, uh, and then McCabe stepping away when the county's positioning politically is probably the best it's ever been. And maybe ever, 
and now handing it off to McCabe. And, and I'll be real interested in seeing how that plays out. Uh, I think McCabe might run the – I don't know if you follow the Mahoney County Republicans on Facebook. but I don't. Oh, it, it, it's it's pretty it, – it's very entertaining. Let, let's put it that way, especially they like to go after Tim, Tim Ryan on there. Uh, with a lot of his stuff, but uh, I'd recommend it's a it's it's a follow I'd recommend or a like I'd recommend you you uh, having on Facebook. Um, but I guess that's something we could we could probably talk about in a future episode. Did you say the new leader of the Democrats was Kale Pesta? I thought it was Kale Pesta. I don't that know what her first like a name. Salad at Whole Foods, <laughs> right? Like, what would you like I to will, eat? Oh, I'm on a diet. Full disclosure, Kale Pesta. I don't know what her first name is, but I thought she has like a two last name situation going. Oh, so uh, it, it was her first name organic, organic kale pesta. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Joyce kale pesta is the name. Okay, that makes not organic. I apologize. <laughs> I bet she's very organic. I hope so. Okay, well that's nice. I hope she does well. You know, good luck. Yeah, but like somebody like her. I mean, following Beatrice's footsteps, who's who's very loud, very connected. I'm not sure how connected she is. I don't really ever recall her ever being interviewed on the news. So that might be interesting to see how that plays out because I think there's still an opportunity for the Mahoney Republicans to kind of continue to seize on this momentum and continue to make the county more competitive, especially with the way Columbiana County has gone, southern Mahoney County. It's just only a matter of time, but hopefully for somebody like me who lives on along 224, that 224 corridor to move more red and really make this county much more competitive moving forward. Yep. Yeah, it should be exciting. Kale Pesta leading the way. <laughs> All right. So let's move on. So like I was saying at the start of the episode, at the end of episode three, I read an article that had been emailed to me by, again, full disclosure, a baby boomer. And in this article, it, like I said earlier, 26-year-old college student who's studying for her MBA in grad school, her name's Alyssa Algren. And at the time, I did not do any research on this. I, didn't, I could not cooperate whether she actually, actually existed or this was some fictitious uh, human being created by some baby boomer who spends all day uh, trolling on Facebook or Twitter. Um, but I can confirm afterwards, and maybe I could, I could share some of what I said read a little bit of her article, um, but I can confirm. I did some research after the fact, and she does, in fact, A, exist, um, and B, something I didn't share with Dane as we uh, started this episode off, is I actually tweeted at her, hoping to get a response. Whoa. Whoa. Oh, no. It gets better. It gets better. So I tweeted at her, hoping to get a response. Nothing. But I found her her. Her website, he actually has a website. I think it's like alyssaalgren.com. So I went there, and there, sure enough, there's a contact link. So I'm like, oh, I got to send her an email. Sure enough, I send her an email, ask her to listen to the podcast from like that moment forward when we start talking about it, and ask for a response. And I kid you not, within probably 12 hours, <laughs> she came back with a full-blown response. <laughs> so something I didn't tell you uh, as we – yeah, so she she listened, um, and she she does admit here that she, she listened, listened to what listened to, to our podcast to me. Yes, this kale. Oh, this isn't kale pesta. This is not kale pesta. This, no, no, no. This is, is not this kale tomato pe- feta. Who, who is this again? <laughs> so yes, Alyssa listened, but she did say she she really couldn't comment too much on it because. 
she says the co-host being you didn't really elaborate on how the piece is considered boomer, boomer propaganda. And before I, 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 I hand it off to you, I do want to admit I, I have my own idea of what boomer propaganda is because let me tell you, I get enough what I view as boomer propaganda from people, whether it be at work or in my personal Gmail account every single week that – it's just oh first off it's yes, every time it is definitely sent by a baby boomer. Two, you look at the stuff, I oftentimes view it as something that is I, I question the validity of it. Third, it's oftentimes either a bunch of meme images or a long chain email that just has gone through about twenty twenty or thirty sets of, 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 of I guess going through different sendings back and forth to different people. So I I, I, I take your point with why maybe you thought it was boomer propaganda, but I can I did a little fact checking and at least this piece was not boomer propaganda. Now well, we could debate the merits of it, but Michael, why don't we do this? So if if you're just now tuning into episode four, you should first of all buy a Casper mattress. Um because this show is sponsored by Casper. Well, it's not yet, but they're going to soon. They and will I'll be cashing those checks. But then you should listen to the end of episode three. But if you don't have time to do that because you're a busy person, Michael, can you read a little bit about from the article, like the title and a little bit from it so that people know yeah. what's in it, the article? And since I have the email pulled up, I know the exact um, minute mark of the last episode. So, um, you know, first off, I encourage everybody to listen to episodes one, two, and three. But if you really want to know what we're talking about, listen to episode three and go to the one hour, 17 minute mark, and you could hear. More of what I'm about to read. So, again, her name's Alyssa Algren, a 26-year-old grad student studying for her MBA. And I, I'll read briefly some of, of her letter that she had that I had shared. Let me pull it up real quick here. All right, so she, she argues from, from, from the point of view that she's a millennial. So she's sitting at a, a coffee shop near a, a town called Nokomis trying to think of what to write about. She says as she scrolled through her newsfeed on her phone, looking at different headlines of Democratic candidates calling for – and I have to sh- drag this over here. Give me one second. Oh, boy. Of course, my just when my computer needs to crap out on one second. Let me what, – What town is she living in? What? Nokomis. Nokomis? Uh, what is that? <laughs> that sounds like a Greek general and, and fought Sparta. Nokomis? How do you spell it? N-O-K-O-M-I-S. Comus, Florida. Okay, it's a town in Florida. Okay. So yes, and now I got it all pulled up. Calling for – or Democratic candidates calling for policies to fix the so-called injustices of capitalism. So she says how she put her phone down and looked around and she said how she saw people talking freely, working on their MacBooks, ordering food, getting it quickly, seeing all the cars go by and it dawned on me or dawned on her that we lived in the most privileged time in the most prosperous nation and we've come, we're, we, our generation, millennials, because Dan and I are both millennials, are blind to it. So she says, how vehicles, food, technology, freedom to associate with whom we choose, these things are ingrained in our American way of life. So we don't give them a second thought. We are so well off here in the U.S. that our poverty line begins 31 times above the global average. Uh, virtually no one in the U.S. is considered poor when you compare it to global standards. Yet in a time where we could order a product off Amazon with one click and have it at our doorstep the next day, we, I guess millennials, are unappreciative, unsatisfied, ungrateful. She talks a little bit more about Ocasio-Cortez, 
uh, maybe American prosperity. But uh, I think a lot of the points she was trying to make were in that initial paragraph there. So if you could, Michael, if you had to sum up this girl's uh, – and I'm going to – what's the name of the article, the, the title? So the name of it – and you could actually look because there's actual articles. Uh, there was actual article. I forget what website it was on questioning if she even wrote this. So you weren't the only one thinking this was boomer propaganda, but it's called My Generation is Blind to the Prosperity Around Us. And I think if you Google it, the article that I actually have in front of me – is smaller than her full-blown article, which I think is on her website. So it's, it's published on the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, FEE.org is where I found it. Yes. And, it, you know, it does start with her sitting in a small coffee shop in Nokomis. There it is. I guess if you've gotten nothing else from this podcast, at least you've learned that Nokomis is a real place. <laughs> um, okay. And so – so yeah, what's what's the thesis that we we're wealthy, we're a wealthy country, we're a wealthy country because of capitalism, right? Yes. Millennials don't appreciate this because they've only known prosperity, and the socialists are wrong because we're we're prosperous. Is is that thesis? I I, I think yeah, your first points are right, and I think maybe she's more or less maybe fired up with how our generation um, has taken a liking to the ideas of, of more government. Um, maybe in, in, in her email to me, I'll, I'm not going to share much of it or all of it, but I'll share a couple of her points. And w- one of her first points she makes to me was how, according to a Gallup survey, how 69% of millennials say they're willing to vote for a socialist for president and how 64% of millennials want the government to play a bigger role in our, in our lives. So I think maybe that is the overarching theme of her, 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 her article is how our generation is so inclined and so willing to give socialism a try perhaps and having the government play a bigger role in our life that, when you know if, if our generation would just stop and look around and realize how good we have it, and maybe there aren't as many injustices in the world or in our country that is that many on the left make it out make it out to um, you know make it seem like there actually are maybe that's how that's my interpretation of it so here's my first step at this right because there's a lot of different angles this discussion can take but, but let, let me give the first thing right. We can both agree that socialism is rising in popularity among millennials, right? This is a this is a reality. Whether it's in polling data, whether it's in electoral patterns, you know, look at the support for Sanders in twenty sixteen. Look at the support for um, Alexandra Octavia. Uh, I can't say Octavia. Oh, uh, well, I've listened to Rush Limbaugh. Ocasio Cortez. Ocasio Cortez, as Rush Limbaugh would say. Yeah, look at all these different, you know. These factoids and the rise of the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, um, the popularity of a website like Jacobin Online, all these are pointing to a rise of socialism among millennials. So let's stipulate the point from the outset that socialism is becoming really popular among millennials. And the question is why, right? And I think that the boomers would argue – this is why I called it boomer propaganda. The boomer line of thought or argument goes like this. Millennials are a very – privileged generation. They've never known large-scale war to the extent of like a World War II or a Korean War, Vietnam War, right, where you had a mass draft. Yep. Um, millennials have known nothing but prosperity, 
Um, American living standards have continued to improve. Things that were uh, rare 20, 30 years ago, like high-end coffee, are now commonplace with Starbucks or smartphones. Um, millennials have been coddled their entire childhood. They're coddled from birth to the university. They're never allowed to fail. They're never told that they're wrong. And as a result, the millennial ego is very fragile and they turn to socialism because they want the security of a socialist system and it's going to doom America because what made America great was this capitalist system, this you know, competitive nature, but millennials are going to undermine it. Is that the boomer point of view? Do you think I articulated it well enough? Yeah, I think you hit the, I think you hit the big points and, and, and I'd agree with that. Yeah, and so I, I think that there's some truth to that, right? Like, you know, you find as you go through life that most political point of views have a kernel of truth. They might interpret things wrong or they might lead things in different directions, but there's a kernel of truth. But let me put on my anti-boomer hat and, and talk about why that's all nonsense, right? And I'm going to alienate people on both the right wing and the left wing. And I'm going to alienate them by saying the following. Millennials are craving security because they have no family structure. Um, the, there's been a huge rise in the amount of homes without fathers. There's been a huge rise in the amount of divorces. Millennials are the children of the first generation that engaged in mass divorce. Millennials are not marrying. More Millennials report that they're more alone than ever before, that they have fewer friends than they did before, they have fewer social connections. Um, millennials report being you know, higher rates of depression, suicide thoughts. Uh, millennials report that they're having less sex than in previous generations, which I find is an interesting factoid, but that's completely true for multiple studies. Hmm. Uh, so millennials are these atomized, sad, depressed individuals without the bonds of community and family and church. That's the other thing. Millennials are less likely to be religious than previous generations. Yep. So there's been a complete collapse in the social structure for millennials. And part of that, and so that's a kind of a right-wing perspective, right? But part of that's also due to, I think, the advancement of the capitalist system in the United States. So here's what the boomers did. The boomers inherited a country that had a pretty well-regulated social structure. They proceeded to dismantle it and open up the United States to foreign competition, right, through free trade uh, and through mass immigration, both illegal and legal. As a result, living standards for working class people, for middle class people, have plateaued. They've stagnated, if not outright declined, okay? Millennials are the first generation. They're going to be less wealthy than their parents. We already know this. Their net worth is far lower. And they're the first generation where they play by the rules, they try to go to school, and they, they're not getting ahead. They only got multi, massive school debt. Uh, so I'm kind of sympathetic to millennials. I, I, think that this, I think that they have some valid points of uh, criticism. Yeah. Well, uh, when, I, when I try to understand why there's this, this increased, I guess, popularity – for socialism among millennials, I try to figure out why. It seems like a lot of it has been just, and maybe I'm wrong on this, has has really been over the last. Well, I would even think since 2016, with Bernie Sanders and the rise of them, and and now this push to like student loan debt, with a lot of people our age going in 
and, and trying to get a degree of some sort, some sort of bachelor's degree, because that is what the generate that's what the boomer generation has told us that you know this is the economy of the future. If you want to make ends meet, if you want to have a great career, you need to go get an education. You need to go to college. You know, blah blah blah. But I think millennials now are, are stuck with this bill. Maybe they're they're struggling to find a job because you know with Social Security and other things. I think, and in, in maybe you have some stats to back this up. It seems as though some people are working longer and staying in their careers longer, and that leaves less an opportunity for a millennial to get a job in in, in some fields. I think that's true, and others not so much. Um, so I, I think a lot of it has to do with that idea of student loan debt in, in, in education and how there's now a push among you know, Bernie Sanders, probably, I don't know if all of them are, on, are in support of it, but a number of Democratic candidates to support this idea of forgiveness of student loan debt, which something I, I just I don't agree with, but uh, I, I, I could see why there's now this increased – uh, popularity for socialism for that point alone um, I think you you do bring up some, some good some other good points about millennials but um, I think in, uh, to kind of go along with that you're talking about net worth well again you have student loan debt um, you have uh, maybe a less likelihood to find a great job so you know when it's all said and done yeah, you're gonna have less net worth. Another interesting thing, in, in you know, I don't know how truthful this is, but I do listen to a lot of CNBC throughout the week. Is how millennials right now are are less likely to purchase homes, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that millennials are waiting longer to get married, which to me is a is a good thing. I, I read something uh, in in leading up to this episode how the divorce rate among millennials is is much less. Than it is among baby boomers. What I thought maybe like at one point the divorce rate was near fifty percent in this country, and I think maybe it's come down in part because of millennials. So you have millennials waiting longer to have to get married, which means they're waiting longer to uh, purchase a home, which I guess really that kind of impacts the economy as a whole. So and maybe that frustrates baby boomers, like saying, "Well, why aren't you doing your part?" Um, so. It's an interesting thing. I think I think there is some truth to to some of the points you make from the boomer perspective about millennials, but I don't think everything millennials do, everything our generation does, is is bad in any way, shape, or form. So there's a, a lot to unpack here, right? There's first of all, let's say I think I agree with you 100 percent that student loans are the big anchor around the necks of millennials that are holding them down. And I think that everything you just described from delaying marriage to delaying child rearing to having fewer children to delaying when you first purchase a home, it's all due to student loans, right? And Mm -hmm. and the question is, like, why is student loan debt – why has it exploded so much? Um, And I think that there's this – there's been this huge push in demand for college education because basically here's what happened. The boomers, under their watch, completely hollowed out the manufacturing sector of this economy. The low-skilled to no-skilled sector of the economy was hollowed out. It was opened up to foreign labor. Um, 
and it and it was basically you know a worker in Ohio with a high school degree was competing against a worker in China, and their wages are going to move in equilibrium, and that means that the worker in Ohio is going to get paid less if he doesn't outright lose his job. So the solution to this from the boomers was, look, we're going to outsource all these manufacturing jobs, but nobody really wants them. They're hard. They're dirty. It's the way of the past. We're all going to get college degrees, and we're all going to be white-collar professionals, right? America will do all the engineering and the high-tech jobs, and all these other countries will do the dirty stuff of making things. And, and it'll be great because we'll all live in the suburbs. We'll all have you know our Volvos and our yuppie cars, and we'll all work white-collar jobs as accountants and investment bankers. It'll be great, right? And the oh, yes. problem is for the vast majority of the population – Everybody starts going to college, and it just creates credential inflation, whereby you know not everybody can be an accountant. Not everybody can be a banker. Not everybody can be a doctor. Not everybody can be a lawyer. And everybody going to college forces the system to pick, pick more and more arcane ways of screening for talent, right, for the top people. And then that forces people – super competition for the top universities. Everybody's piling in to get into Harvard and Yale and in the tier one schools. Meanwhile, the average millennial that really shouldn't be in college, right? Because they're not mentally, they don't have the aptitude for college. They should be maybe in like a a trade school or a two year associate program or something. Now they have a four year degree. That's basically worthless because the degree was never adding value. The degree was just a credential. It's just a signal to the job market. And because everybody else is getting that same degree, that value, that degree has sunk, right? Supply and demand. So Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, whereas somebody, you know, 50 years ago for a boomer, right? Be able to get a great middle-class job with a high school degree. Now they have to get a bachelor's degree to get the same job. And because the schools face no cost pressure whatsoever, they're jacking up tuition, they're jacking up administration, they're jacking up you know free gyms and rock climbing walls. They're throwing it all in the back of millennials, and now they have all this debt. And because they have debt, you know, I think there's an element of prudence there. They don't want to bring children into the world when they have fifty thousand bucks hanging over their head and they're like twenty seven, so they don't get married, they don't have kids. I understand that, and it's been a disaster for our society. And um, I think the boomers were largely responsible. I think the boomers are the worst generation in the history of the United States of America. The boomer generation and its consequences have been a disaster for the American Republic. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I guess in some ways it's kind of hypocritical. They, they like to go after millennials, but they were the ones that parented us. Right. Um, yeah, you know, maybe not the best examples like this idea of like this trophy culture where every student or every kid gets a, gets a trophy. But I mean, in large part, a lot of that I feel like is from the baby boomer generation. I feel like they created that. They, they created this environment where that was acceptable and that was pushed. And then like you go to sporting events anymore and the way parents are, and I'm not talking parents that are millennials. I'm talking about parents who are baby boomers, how they are towards not only their kids, but for the coaching staff towards official officials. It, it, it's, you know, people could do no wrong anymore. And, and it's, it, it's, it's disturbing to me, but I do think in many ways they are kind of hypocritical. Um, you know, just because of those reasons, I think they created this, so they do bear some of the responsibility for it, uh, and they need to look at themselves in the mirror and realize, you know what? Well, maybe, maybe 
we, we created this mess. And if you want to call it a mess, we, we created the millennials and, and we're, we're going to need to adapt to them. Cause I think in 2019, this year, millennials are going to now surpass baby boomers in this country in terms of total population. I thought it was 2019 or 2020. So if, if, if baby boomers haven't learned to adapt with us yet, they need to figure it out pretty quickly. Yeah. And look, here's the point, right? There's, there's a lot of conservative, there are a lot of conservatives out there like Charles Kirk um, and other Twitter personalities. They're like, Hey, millennials, you want to pay off your loans? Get a job. I think Ben Shapiro, who I can't stand. Uh, I agree. A line not a fan he, of him. Not a fan at all. For he was like, hey, you dumb millennials, if you want to pay off your loans, get a job. Ignoring the fact that Ben Shapiro was completely set up in his job by his wealthy father. But that's another story. But what that does is a lot of these people are not lazy. They're not ignorant. They're not um, – you know, they, they didn't do anything wrong. They were just trying to play by the rules. The boomers instructed millennials from the beginning, get a college degree and you'll have a great middle class career. So the millennials did that in mass and they found that that wasn't true. They're a little bit bitter. So, you know, the right wing response to that has been, you know, well, you got to, hey, we shouldered the burdens. Now you have to shoulder the burdens. And while that's true in a basic sense, and I don't believe in free college for everyone, I don't believe in school loan forgiveness. I think a little sympathy would go a long way, right? And, and yeah. in my mind, the right wing faces on economics a Bismarck moment. And what I mean by that is, you know, Bismarck was the conservative chancellor of the German Empire, and he he had to deal with the rise of the Socialist Party. So what did he do? He kind of outflanked them by creating pensions for the Germans and basic national health care. So he outflanked them from the left to defuse the socialists. In my mind, the Republicans have to outflank the, the rising socialists in the United States by kind of moving to the left on economics a little bit. The tariffs, I think, are a crucial measure to protect workers against countries with cheap labor. You know, so they don't have, it kind of shelters them. Controlling immigration, both legal and illegal, is another crucial measure, right? Let's talk mm-hmm. about one more rant I want to go on. You know, we talk about, hey, get a good degree in STEM and you can get a good job. And then we turn around, the same boomers in Congress turn around and then allow HB1 visas flooding the market for these STEM jobs, you know, bringing in foreigners from overseas to compete against Americans who have done the right thing by getting a degree in the right sectors. Now, how's that going to help their wages? How's that going to help them get a job? If there's a tight labor market, that's great. So what? Companies wage your raise your wages to pay people more um, to be a software engineer or a programmer. That's only going to help the people and the, the millennials, the young people get higher wages and do better and starting up families and that. So, sorry, that was a bit ranty, but it, I, again, I just think we can go down the list of the ways boomers have screwed up this country um, and how they're continually, you know, they have their heads in the stands. I, I keep saying to people, there is a big red tide, and I don't mean red like Republican, I mean red like socialist, coming in the United States. And the Republicans have to take actions now to defuse this threat, or it's going to be worse than anybody can imagine. Bernie Sanders is going to look like uh, you know, Ronald Reagan based on what's coming down the pipeline. Yeah, and I, I think in many ways – we're seeing it happen before our own eyes. I think somebody like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and some of their ideas 10, 15 years ago, I guess in, in many ways there would be considered maybe radical, a little taboo, just way out there that certainly not acceptable uh, to society at that 
point in time. And now it's, it's normal. It's, a, it's as if it's, it's the, the, over time, over that 10, 15 year stretch, it's become normal, normalizing the idea of student loan forgiveness, normalizing this idea of healthcare for all and, and some other things that they push. Um, and so, you know, it, yeah, look, oh, look, like if the choice is between tariffs, right? or healthcare for all, or student loan forgiveness. I pick tariffs every single day of the week. Yeah, the tariffs are a tax, and they're an intervention in the market, but the tariffs allow people to have jobs here at home, and it keeps them off the welfare rolls, right? It allows them to own a little bit of property and to be invested in the system. It's an artificial support, sure, but it's the good kind of artificial support. Compare that to the total free market system where we have open borders, both in terms of people and immigration and in terms of trade of goods and services, vast swaths of the country, they get unemployed, they fall out of the workforce, and what are they going to eventually turn to? They're going to turn to more, you know, harder forms of socialism. And again, like with the student loan debt, right, the, the easy solution here is just allow student loan debt to be dischargeable in bankruptcy court and force universities to pay you know, a fraction of any student loan debt that gets discharged in bankruptcy court, right? So if somebody has $100,000 and they declare bankruptcy, force schools to pay out 50% of that to the owners of those loans. That would cause tuition to go down. It would force universities to control tuition spending. Um, And it would allow people to get out from under debt, right? Like, okay, yeah, I'm going to get a huge hit to my credit. I won't be able to take any loans, but it'll be debt-free. Right, and that I think it's a crucial reform that we can do. Instead of if we get rid of all the school loan debt, you know, tomorrow, all it's going to do is just allow people to take on more debt. It doesn't fix the system. It's just kind of like uh, papering over it for a day, and then the next day, people take on more and more debt. Mm-hmm. All, all good points. I get one thing I did want to talk about, and maybe this is maybe where I'm a bit more sympathetic to the boomer point of view is some i guess some negative connotations when it comes to liberals or not liberals millennials same I'm thing, giving really. energy, <laughs> any, anymore that it is pretty much the same thing so like these idea uh you know you hear about colleges and having safe spaces you hear about using more gender neutral terminology the, the one that really gets me and i just heard this for on the news today on the radio i think maybe it's like the university of kansas and and these college campuses wanting to uh, b- prohibit Chick-fil-A from being on campuses. I feel like these are, are, are millennial causes, millennial things that they have pushed over the last few years that, again, have become more normal. Curious to hear your thoughts on, I guess, on those three things. So that's a good question, and it's kind of related. And it's, you know, what has driven the rise of identity politics? Um, especially we see it at the university campus, right? That seems to be ground zero for all of this stuff. And, uh, you know, I think it was famously encapsulated by um, that video that went viral a few years ago where this girl at Yale was screaming at um, one of her residential advisors or that. Do you remember this video? I don't know. I, I probably would know it to see it, but yeah, so this there's it went viral. A girl at Yale was screaming about how she's oppressed. Right, she's a student at Yale, one of the most elite schools in the country. But she was screaming about how she's, she's oppressed, and a man that was sympathetic to her, who was her residential advisor, was trying to help her. Um, she basically shouted him out, right? And they formed a mob and shouted him down. 
And that was just like one story in, in the whole realm of like millennials craving safe spaces, especially on the college campus, uh, which has evolved to become basically a, a, a daycare for the upper middle class. I mean, that, that's what the college campus is, right? Like the idea that people are going to college campuses and, and studying, I mean, there's a little bit of that going on, but survey data shows that people study less now than they ever did before. Uh, they spend fewer hours reading. They spend less time in the classroom. They spend less time in the library. Like the amount of learning going on at college campuses today in 2019 is probably at the lowest points ever been in our history. Um, probably in the history of Western civilization, if, if I'm being serious. Um, so the larger question, though, of like, well, what's caused this, right? That's a good question. That's a really, really good question. I, I don't know. Um, I, what do you think? Well, I, I think part of it is in this day and age with social media, you could have maybe more radical – and I use that term loosely, radical – or unique or out there points of view that you find a few people who agree with you and you get a few more people who are like, oh, I'm open to that. And then sooner there comes a point where other people out there who would never share this point of view with you say, oh, look at all these people that share this point of view. I'm more willing to accept that point of view and go with it. So I think in some ways social media has played a role into this where you could find – Anybody to agree with you on, on, on anything. I mean, from political topics to, you know, if you want to talk safe spaces or gender neutral, you could go to Reddit, find some goofy community on there, uh, Facebook, any one of these social media platforms, you could find that community of people who support you. And I think in that, in that, where it differs from how it was done in the past, before, like in the social media age, before the internet really took off. It was more face-to-face interaction, whereas now so much more of the communication for millennials is done over our telephones, our iPads, our, our computers, um, through the internet. And now it's, by having that means of communication through social media, you're able to connect. And I, I think in, in, in that respect, it's, it's helped – and I keep using this term normalize, but I think the, the appropriate word – normalize these concepts and make it acceptable. I mean – so much of, of what I see on Twitter so so far out there on the left and things that I would never view to be acceptable in in, in politics today, but it, it, apparently it's acceptable. And you know, and I mentioned Chick Fil A. I mean, this this faux outrage about Chick Fil A restaurants being on campuses. When I go to, I thoroughly enjoy going to Chick Fil A at the Southern Park Mall, but there's also the one at 224 and, and Boardman there, where it has a dual drive-through, and at almost all hours of the day, it's packed. And I always think to myself, boy, how much that you know, how how does that infuriate uh, some some of these college students, these millennials, these whatever liberals who are so anti Chick Fil A? I just question, like, how could something like that, an, an organization that God forbid they support what fellowship of, of Christian athletes, Salvation Army, some of these other charities that support. How is this charity, or how is this this, this organization, this this growing corporation, viewed so negatively in our culture? When I, I view it as they do a lot of good, and, and you know they, they 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 help train their their employees well. They support them. Oftentimes they support them through college. They they they've always paid them maybe more than some of their counterparts in fast food. Uh, but I think all of this has been created through social media. 
So I have three theories for the radicalization of millennials. Okay, let's let's call it that. Um, theory number one is uh, it goes back to the the boomers, right? And it goes back to the trial rearing, and and it's basically this: because millennials, as a generation, a generational cohort, grew up in very um, unstable environments, right? Because they're more divorced, excuse me, more divorced. Um, uh, you know, greater social dysfunction, families, you know, splitting apart, forming up again. That could be, that could lead to a personality type that seeks security and they seek security via the safe space, right? That's one theory. I'm not saying this is necessarily true. This is just a theory. That's theory number one. Theory number two is that this is all about virtue signaling. It's about class. So, you know, whereas before you would buy expensive goods to show that you are of a higher class than somebody else, like I buy the BMW while Michael only has the Ford and shows that I'm wealthier than him, that's kind of fallen out of favor amongst the upper middle class. And the way you you show that your status, your, your virtue, is by adopting ever more extreme positions. So if Michael, uh, you know, he's a member of the enlightened, educated elite, He's for all the right issues. He's pro-choice. He's pro-gay marriage. And I come and I want to say, yeah, but I'm more educated. I'm more enlightened than Michael. I not only listen to NPR and drink fair trade coffee. I believe in transgender rights, right? And I believe in, in reparations for black people. These are two more extreme positions that allow me to say that, like, I'm even more educated and I'm even more enlightened than you are. So that's the second theory called the virtue signaling or the class signaling theory uh, that leads to a constant mutually assured destruction where you just keep trying to out the other person in terms of the more extreme position. The third theory um, is I would call it the tribalist theory. And the tribalist theory is basically America is getting more diverse as a society. And the diversity of a society and every other human society has led to increased tribalism. America is no exception. People are becoming increasingly more tribalistic. And this tribalistic um, uh, mentality, as it you know, starts to echo and ripple through the population, people start to think of anybody within their tribe as good and anybody outside of their tribe as bad. And all good things come from within the tribe and all bad things come from outside of the tribe. So that leads to millennials, who are the most diverse generation in, in American history, becoming much more tribalistic and a lot of what you see is the radicalization is just really a move towards tribalization like whites middle class whites are becoming more radical in their right wing views and adopting trump right uh blacks and hispanics might be becoming more tribalistic and adopting more identity-based politics etc so three theories for you to chew on I prefer probably the the third one. I'm not saying the other two are bad, but I probably would be more inclined to agree with your uh, perspective on uh, tribalism. I I agree with a lot of what you said there. And and I'm hoping that our listeners, which I think tend to be more of the millennial background, just from – there's probably people more our age from – I know we share this on Twitter, Facebook, and and elsewhere. I think – this would be a good opportunity to hear from some of our listeners on this very topic, to hear their thoughts on, I guess, on this whole debate in general between uh, millennials and baby boomers. But as to why such things as like safe spaces and using gender-neutral terminology and those types of things, why it's 
maybe more prevalent now and why it's more accepted. Um, I guess maybe along, at least amongst millennials, but, uh, so oh. I guess that's a shameless plug for, please send your questions in info at mvred.com or Twitter mvred or on Facebook. Um, would love to hear from you on this, on this topic. I have one more, I want to addendum to point one where I talked about like insecurity creating, uh, the need for safe space, right? Because of higher rates of divorce than that. The addendum to this is, okay, so millennials have less of a traditional identity with social organizations, religious organizations, familial, and friendships, right? So they're less rooted than ever before. They're moving around the country. They don't belong to the Knights of Columbus or the Catholic Church like previous generations would. As a result, they're very atomized. And the result of atomization is because they don't have a secure identity in all these social, these call them beneficial and, and positive social organizations, they cling to these extreme identity politic definitions. This also explains the rise of the, the alt-right as a way of creating identity for themselves, right? So whereas before 30 years ago, someone might say, you know, I'm an Irish Catholic immigrant, blue-collar person, and you know, my parents all go to church and I have a really firm identity there. The millennial, right, might say, well, I'm actually, you know, a bisexual youth. And that's a way of creating identity in a world where they don't have identity. It's a way of creating uniqueness and distinction when they're really not unique nor distinct. Well, I, I can relate in some ways with your with that addendum. Uh, for instance, so I go to church every week. I, you know, I go to Catholic church every week. I look around the congregation, and in terms of like people our age there with their kids, I could really only think of maybe four or five couples. And we're talking probably the mass I, I typically attend probably has three hundred fifty, maybe some weeks closer to four hundred people there. But I could really only think of like four or five younger couples there. And then there's still some other youth, probably kids in college and high school, but they're there because, you know, maybe their parents force them or, you know, I'm not saying they're forced, but they just typically go with their parents. So I think I agree with you on the, on the religious perspective. I just think there's fewer people, our generation, uh, affiliated maybe, or, or practicing in, in whatever faith they are. And obviously I went to a Catholic school at where I, Although the school's closed, but it's you know where my uh, where I attend church um, is you know I don't see really any classmates from there. Went to Catholic high school, don't see um, most of my. Uh, obviously, they could go to other churches, but I don't see any of my high school classmates typically at church. Um, so on, on the faith front, I agree with you there. And then on the social front, I'm in the Youngstown Lions Club. And when I became a member, I definitely was the youngest member by probably eight or nine years. And I mean, they would actually joke. <laughs> I would probably, I think my membership brought the average age down to probably like 65 in the organization. And since then, my sister-in-law and then a classmate of mine from Ursuline have joined. So um, I think the three of us around age 30 have brought the membership down maybe closer to 63 years of age. But I mean, people are age. Like I thoroughly enjoy, you know, going to this social or the Lions club every week and hear the different speakers, how they're, they impact the community. You have that sense of camaraderie. 
Um, you know, ours is uh, men and women, but you, you develop relationships with those people in the community. It's for a greater purpose uh, to help, uh, uh, you know, the city of Youngstown, the Mahoning Valley as a whole. I thoroughly enjoy that. And I think it's, it's something that lacks having that involvement by, I think millennials lack that involvement. And I think it's something that really is gratifying for me. I think maybe some of their issues could be resolved in some way and getting involved in such organization to see how, you know, uh, you know, and I'm, I know I'm kind of rambling here, but the Alliance Club, we have a different speaker from different organizations every single week. And oftentimes it's about people who are less fortunate than us. And I think maybe that constant reminder each week about how maybe you don't have it as bad. Maybe, um, you know, if you get involved, you can help other people out. You have a, a, an opportunity to develop those relationships. I think it go a long way. So I, I relate a lot with what you're saying in your, your addendum there. I think lack of going to church or practicing faith is, is a big part and lack of social you – you're participating in social organizations as well. Um, because I think a lot of the people in my club probably were members when they probably were in their late 20s, early 30s, and they've been – with it for the past 30, 40, 50 years. And then there's like three of us around the age of 30 in there. It's like, there's this huge gap and it's unfortunate. Yes, and to I see. think that that leads to radicalization, right? So the, the lack of social networks, and I mean that in the truest sense, not like social media, but social networks, com- connection to the community, uh, human beings are unhappy. They need a sense of greater purpose. And I think that you're probably a very happy and well-adjusted person. You have kids, you're married, you're volunteering, you're probably busy and tired, but I bet on a deep level, you're probably very satisfied with life. And as a result, you're not going to pick any radical ideology, right? You're going to stay kind of like moderate conservative, let's keep the status quo going. Whereas somebody that's like all alone in their room and it's $30,000 in school loan debt, not married, no kids, don't volunteer, and they just click around on the internet, they're prone to radicalization, either of a left-wing bent or a right-wing bent. So I think that that is uh, key. I don't know how much time we have left, Michael, but I wanted to go on a rant about boomer aesthetics in a Catholic church. Is that a little too extreme, or do we have time? No, I mean, okay. go for it. No, we, we definitely have time. We have no caps, okay, so, so by all so means. Let me, let, me put on my, let me get on my soapbox. So while we're on the topic of boomers, it has to be said that boomers have the wor- worst aesthetical taste of any generation whatsoever right and that boomers think that they've literally created the universe and that like wearing blue blue jeans right they feel is a revolutionary act uh and so cool and hip and it hasn't been cool in like for at least 30 years right and it's like hey boomers you know there are more articles of clothing for your 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 trouser wear than than blue jeans but that's not the point the point i'm going on is I go to a Catholic church. I go to Shanley's Catholic church. I do go to a Catholic church, right? And the Catholic church is dealing with yep. this crisis where there's, there are no young people there. There are no families. Um, kids are leaving the church in mass. I'm, I'm sure if you go to mass, you, you're probably like one of the only people married with children in that church. Probably like one of, I'd say no more than five families. Am I right about that? Yeah. And like, like I said, it was pretty typically the one mass on Sunday mornings that we have, there's probably four or five younger families there with people around our age with kids that attend every week that I can think of. There could be more, but that's, you know, that's kind and of what comes to mind. The reason is, 
is that going to church is physically painful, and it's painful not because it's religious, not because you're praying to God, not because you're taking the Eucharist, not because of the priest, nor because of the homily, but because of all the lame folk songs, right, that have become and defined the Mass. The Mass is like going to a boomer folk festival in 1973, okay? They, the people that control the music for Catholic Mass across the country are baby boomers in their 60s, now going on in their 70s, who when they came of age, folk music was really cool and revolutionary and really hip, man, because, you know, it was the hippie generation and everything like that. And they thought, well, man, listen, the reason why people aren't going to church is because the music doesn't come to them. So let's just sing all these little, like, uh, folk songs. And when you go to Mass, the aesthetics, the sounds of it, it sounds like, again, the lamest concert from the 1970s. It's like what Hank Hill said to Bobby Hill when Bobby Hill was getting into Christian rock. You know, Christians aren't making rock any better, right? Rock is just making Christianity worse. Christian, Christian rock. And it's like the you go to Mass and all of the songs sound exactly the same, and it's all the same aesthetics. And if you are a young person seeking God or seeking the transcendental or seeking something divine, you don't find it at the church. You don't find it at Mass. Instead, you find more pop culture. And the thing is, from a young age, we are inundated with pop culture, right? We can't escape it. And I think millennials are generally thirsty for something that is, like, greater than them. And they go to church. They're like, okay, I'll try this whole God thing. And then they hear a bunch of 7 year olds singing songs, you know, that were published in 1973 by some Jesuit who thought it was really cool at the time. And it's like, oh, this sounds like something that my grandma would listen to, you know, coming back from bingo. It's so lame. And then they never go to church again. <laughs> so I think the boomers, once they die off, the aesthetic of the church has to change. The music has to change. We need something different. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a return to the Latin mass. I'm not trying to argue that. I'm just saying that the aesthetics are boomer in their core. And it, it's like it's – like, bug spray and it repels millennial and forces them away i don't know what you think about that yeah i mean i think that you bring up a fascinating topic um so i guess there's there's going to come this point here soon like you say with millennials dying no off, not millennials what is going to be the direction it's it's almost my bedtime no i'm kidding um my brain turned off there. So yes, boomers <laughs> dying off. In what direction the church, I think, will take with the music? Um, so uh, you know, I'm not going to elaborate too much into this, but the church that I was married at, which was a Catholic church, was maybe a little bit more. Uh, I guess you could say more hip, um, more willing to go out there. I guess similar to maybe kind of what you would expect. Uh, kind of how we. What we you would expect from when we were at Ursuline, uh, a lot more instruments, guitar, all that, waving. You know, I don't want to say waving their hands in the air, but maybe doing things that you might be more willing to find in like an evangelical church. And so I was married in one of those churches, a Catholic church that is. But they were kind of more, I guess I'll use the term liberal, more progressive with their music. And then 
you go to another church like the cathedral and one of my best friends, Craig, Craig, hopefully you're listening. He is um, the music minister at Our Lady of Mount Carmel, but he also does some, uh, I think he sings in the choir at St. Columba. That's much more old school, 1800s type music, the chants and all of that. And so I think there's going to be this kind of this, 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 this point going to be coming up here in the next 10, 15 years of what direction the church is going to take with, with those types of things. Uh, you bring up the Latin Mass. I guess uh, in talking with my friend Craig, he says – I mean there's actually I think like 19 or so in the seminary right now, and a lot of them are like old school Catholics that would like to go back to the Latin Mass. I don't know too much about the Latin Mass other than I think it would probably maybe be uh, quite different than what I'm used to. Um, so I'm not the type that wants a, I, 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 I'm not the type of millennial that wants to go to church and have my hands going in the air and all that. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get into the whole religious aspect, but that's just me. But uh, I think that'll be interesting to see what will happen here in the next 10 or 15 yeah, years. Yeah, to be fair that. to the evangelicals, uh, right? Like at least the music at their services is like nineties alternative rock. Uh, so they've at least progressed 20 <laughs> years relative to the Catholics. Um, because it seems like the average age of a millennial or a evangelical church is like Generation X, whereas a Catholic church is still Boomer. If I had to summarize this entire podcast, it would be this. The Boomers were born in a unique period of history where the entire society catered to their every whim and desire, and they were born in a unique age of abundance. They completely transformed economic, the political, the sexual, and the cultural system of the United States of America. But that transformation represented circumstances which were transitional in nature. In other words, the boomer generation was an aberration. Okay, It's not reflective of how human reality is. And the problem with the boomers is that they think that this aberration is permanent. They think that their changes to the world society are is progress, when instead it's just the degeneration of whatever civilization we had left after the second world war so you know that's i guess that's it <laughs> on that note i think it's probably best to to wrap up this episode i think it was it was very entertaining very interesting to talk about millennials talk a little bit about the canfield fair and as i am rambling here i was trying to see when the next debate was for the democrats uh let's see here the date is september 12th so i think by the time we do our next podcast we could recap or talk a little bit about that next debate i think right now they're having as they go to cnn they're having the climate change town hall but i don't really want to talk about that um but we'll talk about that next debate unfortunately marion williamson i do not think made the cut which sort of surprised me because i thought she would make it uh and uh, I'd like to share my thoughts on Congressman Tim Ryan and uh, whatever he thinks he's doing by staying in the race because I think, what, four or five now have dropped out, and yet his percentage has gone nowhere. Uh, I, I, I don't know if he's, you know, if, he, if he's – what land he's living on, what fantasy land he's living on, but I think it's time for him to drop out, so I'll share my thoughts on that. And maybe by then he will drop out eight days from now. After he realizes, uh, once again, he's not on the debate. So anything else you want to add before we conclude this episode? I just want to add and include this in the podcast, but you got to promote the hell out of this episode because I think this is podcast gold. And I think a lot of people will be very interested in this. So, you know, spam this on Facebook, you know, press that like button, retweet it on Twitter, 
get the boomers fired up. I want them to hear this because listen, we need a. Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to say what I was going to say. We need to figure out what to do with the boomers, and we need to. We just need to get rid of their ideology. They can live. They can, you know, wear jean shorts all day long, and those Oakley sunglasses that are really ugly. You're not a fan of jean no. shorts. <laughs> Wait, well, one real, real quick point I want to make. So I think maybe my freshman year of college, some nobody got through to me that jean shorts were not the thing to wear. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure I wore the wore the college quite a few times. Nothing I'm very proud to admit, but I'm pretty self-deprecating. I'm, I don't mind to, to poke fun of myself, but I I, I kind of have a, a a spot. I kind of wish jean shorts were still a thing. I will well, I will say that. Well, if you're 75 retired and on a pension, <laughs> they are. So uh, maybe one day, Michael. <laughs> Well, my wife likes to say I'm an old person in a 30-year-old body since I listen to talk radio all day and and read message boards and all that for sports. Um, so maybe there's some truth to that. <laughs> That's pretty boomer. Talk radio is very boomer. I love talk radio, though. So. Oh, I'm a big fan as well. So um, that's all. I will say this. I am no longer considered maybe a Russian spy um, Facebook now recognizes the fact I am an American citizen, so I am able to advertise this podcast, which I plan on doing since I really enjoy this one. So I'll maybe promote it and kind of do real – I could do kind of geographically speaking, maybe across the Mahoning Valley, start there, and maybe really hit that boomer demographic in my uh, search demographics or whatever parameters that I'll, I'll be doing. But I, I definitely intend to promote this quite a bit, tell a lot of people about it, and then uh, spend a little – couple bucks promoting it as well because i think it's a it's a really entertaining topic um so that's all i have uh, and like i said earlier probably about 15 20 minutes ago encourage you if you have any comments questions anything like that you could email us info at mvred.com you could go to our facebook uh, mvred.com on there find us on twitter it's a uh, mvred blog i think on there uh, shoot questions our way uh, I think a lot of millennials are listening to this. Hopefully, we'll get a lot of baby boomers as well. We can get a lot of feedback. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, and hopefully, this, this episode takes off because I think it was a really good one. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks, everybody. And uh, yeah, you tweet your questions to us or send them or mail them to us. I don't, I don't care, but uh, get them to us and uh, talk to you all next time. Yeah. Uh, one, one, one last thing. Do we have to get one last blurb in about Casper Mattress? Oh, can I? Yeah, Casper Mattress. Listen, oh yeah, absolutely. If, if after working your twelve-hour day job and complaining about boomers gets you down, well, the good thing is you could go home and take a rest on a mattress that is not only refreshing but enlightening as well—a Casper mattress for eighteen payments as low as nine ninety-nine per month. You too can own a Casper <laughs> mattress. They sponsor this blog. They don't know it yet, and it's probably illegal what I'm doing. But they are a big, big fan of the MV Red blog, and uh, I'm sure they're going to cut me a check one day. It'll be a big, big check. So uh, don't be a boomer. Buy a Casper mattress. <laughs> I love it. And uh, as, we, as we close this episode out, again, encourage you to send their questions our way. Hit the subscribe button. We're on Apple. We're on Google. We're on all the major po- podcast platforms. If you listen to podcasts, find MB Red on there. We're on there. Subscribe. You'll get notifications when the next episode comes out here uh, within the next uh, day or so. And uh, 
If you enjoy this episode, like it, share it on Facebook, email it to your friends. Maybe if you're a boomer, you could spread some boomer propaganda. Talk about our episodes. Send it to your fellow boomers. uh, See what they have to say about it. But uh, with that, that's all we have. So I want to thank Dane as well. And I look forward to hearing from you on episode five next week. Take care, everybody.